0: Amen. And this time the Grove kids are dismissed and they go out the door over yonder. Okay, let's do this. 2,000 years ago, Jesus sat down on a mountainside overlooking the Sea of Galilee and presented His Kingdom Manifesto, also known as the Sermon on the Mount. A conversation about what it means to, to live in His kingdom. And he concluded that manifesto with these words in Matthew chapter 7, beginning at verse 24. Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man. Someone say, is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the the streams rose, the winds beat and blew against That house, yet it did not fall because it had a foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built this house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. And then Matthew writes, When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority. And not as the teachers of the law. After this, Jesus came down from the mountainside. And in Matthew's chapter 8 and 9, we see Jesus demonstrating his authority over all things. Now, so far we have seen Jesus demonstrate his authority over sickness and disease. Matthew 8, verses 1 through 17. Over what's required if we want to follow after him and live in his kingdom. And his kingdom, the way in is all in. Matthew 8, 18 through 22. We see Jesus demonstrate his authority over nature as he commanded the waves and the wind to be still. Matthew 8, 23 through 27. And we see him demonstrate his authority over the supernatural, over demons, over the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms as he simply spoke a word and cast out a legion of demons. Matthew 8, 28 through 34. And remember, last week we saw that that once Jesus cast out this legion of demons out of these two powerful, naked, bleeding, violent men who could not even be subdued with chains, who are now dressed in the right mind, sitting at the feet of Jesus, the people of the town were afraid, and they asked Jesus to leave the area. That's correct. They asked the one who had the power not only to heal every sickness and disease in the community, but also to invite them into the kingdom of God, they asked Jesus to leave. Question, why would they do that? Why would they ask Jesus to leave? Now, we can't know for sure because the text doesn't tell us, but I, I, I think the reason they left is because they did not want his presence and his holiness to interfere with the way they wanted to live out their lives. So Jesus left. And understand... If people ask Jesus to leave, he'll do just that. He'll leave, at least for now. That is until he returns on the day of his final judgment. Get it? Good. And here's the deal. When, when Jesus and his presence, when his word and his ways leave an individual or a nation, the results are usually not so good. And unfortunately, we have seen this very thing played out in our own country during the last few decades. I Understand, our country and our culture has been asking Jesus and his word and his ways to leave for years. Now, they're totally okay with the Jesus they created in their own image, the Jesus who agrees with them, the Jesus who is okay with how they're living, they're fine with it. That Jesus hanging out, but the Bible Jesus, they've asked to leave. And the results have been it's well, been a lot like what Paul described in Second Timothy chapter three. People love only themselves and their money. They'll be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful. They'll consider nothing sacred. They'll be unloving and unforgiving. They'll slander others and have no self control. They'll be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride, and love pleasure rather than God. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Paul says stay away from people like that. And listen, I I get it. In this ever-changing world where norms and values and right and wrong are constantly changing, it can be hard to know what to think, where to stand, what is true, what is false, what is loving, what is unloving. And listen, in these changing times, we we need a foundation to build our lives on. We, We need something to anchor to that's stable and solid. And there is such a place. It's called the living and active Word of God. Paul says this, All scripture, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is True. true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and it teaches us to do what is right. You see, we must resist the temptation to anchor to and build our lives on the values of our ever changing culture. I mean, there was a time when our culture said, you know what, it is okay to own slaves. Thought that was right. That was good. That was normal. And so you and I have a choice to make in this culture. Will we, will we base our values and beliefs, what is right, what is wrong, what is true, and what is false, on culture, or will we base it on the Word of God? That's a choice each of us would make. And I would just encourage you to choose God's Word. It hasn't changed in 2,000 years. Amen? Now the text we're going to unpack this morning is Matthew 9. And we made it to another chapter. Now calling the conversation, is there a doctor in the house? In this conversation we're going to see that Jesus is once again demonstrating his authority, and this time that he has the authority to forgive sins. I made a Facebook post this week and I said, "Hey, what are the in your opinion, what are the qualities that make a doctor a good doctor?" And what are the qualities that make a doctor a not so good doctor? And here's some of here's some what people said for a good doctor: takes the time to listen and to explain the treatment plan. Is compassionate and caring. Is wise in their field and trustworthy. Someone else said uh, they look for solving the root problem rather than just treating the symptom. Uh, Has the health and well being of their patient as their only agenda. Responds to phone calls and follow-up questions. Open-minded and not bound to preconceived ideas. And not quick to label the problem and then just move on. Attentive and have a good bedside manner. And a bad doctor would just kind of much be the opposite of all these things. Anybody ever have a bad doctor? Yeah, I had one I had a fire a couple years ago, right? Um, Here's a few questions for you. Would a doctor who told sick people that they were not sick, would that be a good doctor or a bad doctor? Would a doctor who, who knew the cure, who knew the treatment plan for someone's serious illness, but never told them about that plan, be a good doctor or a bad doctor? And would a doctor who refused to be around sick people be a good doctor or a bad doctor? Now, now hold on to your answer to those questions. We'll grab them at the very end. And here's how we're going to attack our conversation. Is there a doctor in the house? At first, we're going to walk through the text. And then we're going to pull out several takeaways for us to take home and see how God wants us to apply them to our lives. Sound like a plan? Awesome. Two people like it. All right. Well, hey, we're going to take two and welcome those around you. And then we'll jump back into message. So, let the be with us as we walk through your word this morning. Help us to take away what you want us to take away. And help me not to get in the way of what you would like to say. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, walking through the text. First, we have um, back home. Matthew 9, verse 1, Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. And listen, the town he's talking about would be the city of Capernaum. It was a coastal city. It was the largest city on the Sea of Galilee. And we have this awesome map. So he was over here. And he's crossing back to to Capernaum. And remember earlier, Jesus um, moved to Capernaum from from Nazareth to set up his base camp for his his Galilean ministry. And he's probably staying at the home of Peter and Andrew, who were probably upper-middle-class people because they had their own fishing business. And keep in mind, Jesus is pretty well known at the time, right? Having cleansed the leper, having healed the centurion servant, the centurion was probably the highest Roman official in the city healing uh, Peter's uh, mother-in-law and then healing the crowd of people that lined up at Peter's house for hours. And so, Jesus is back and as always, a crowd begins to gather. And I think rather quickly because they know, hey, we don't know how long this guy's staying here. And if we're to get us help, we better jump in and meet with Jesus now. And so, a crowd gathers and, and Luke gives us some additional information about that crowd gathering at Peter's house. He says this, um, one day Jesus was teaching and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem and the power of the Lord was with Jesus to to heal the sick. And so uh, Luke is telling us that there are a bunch of Pharisees and scribes sitting at Peter's house. Some came as far away as Jerusalem which is 80 miles away, you know, that's like from Charlottesville to Richmond, just a a little bit further. And they probably, I I don't think they had a car, so they probably more than likely walked the entire way. And so what led all these religious leaders to make the trip and descend on to Capernaum? Well, here's what I think drew them. Remember one of the things that Jesus did first when he got to Capernaum was he cleansed a man who had leprosy. And you know what Jesus told him to do? Once you have been cleansed? In Matthew 8, 4, we read this. He told this guy, Go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. And people go, believe me when I tell you that when this guy had his incurable disease, goes to the temple and shows the priest that he had been cleansed, it created quite a stir in the temple and around the city like it's not something they had ever seen before. In Scripture only two people we see healed of leprosy. When God gave it to Miriam, remember that? And God healed it. And then there was a, a Syrian general named Nahum in 2 Kings chapter 5 when the prophet Elisha told him to dip in the Jordan. And a lot of the commentators I read said that there's no really record of anyone being cleansed from serious leprosy. And then they hear that the guy who did it was declaring that the kingdom of God was at hand. Well, what are self-proclaimed gatekeepers of the coming of Messiah to do? Beeline at to Capernaum and check out this ragtag carpenter turned rabbi with messianic rumors. Next we read, a paralyzed guy is brought to Jesus. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. Now Luke adds details that maybe a lot of you know, right? We know the story. Uh, this guy is paralyzed and... His friends want to get him to Jesus. So they're carrying the Jesus, and they cannot get into Peter's house. It's so crowded, mostly a bunch of scribes and Pharisees from every village in Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. They can't get him through the door. The Pharisees aren't giving up their place, right? They're special people, and they're not at my place. So they climb on the roof, right, open the roof, and they lower the guy down before Jesus on a rope. Now, Matthew doesn't talk about this at all. And he doesn't leave it out because it's not important or because it didn't happen, but because he had one focus in Matthew chapters 8 and 9 to demonstrate that Jesus has absolute authority. And his whole point here is say, I want you to know that Jesus has absolute authority to forgive sins. So that's why he didn't mention it. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Question, when Jesus saw whose faith? Well, the pronoun is Plural. Some people think you know, when he looked up and saw the, the faith of the guys who brought him and lowered him down. I, I think it's both. I, I think he saw the faith of the guys who lowered him, and he saw the face, faith of the guy who had been lowered before him. Now, know what thoughts do you think are going through this guy's mind right? as he's being lowered through the roof? And maybe thoughts like, what if they drop me? What if the rope breaks? What if I slide off the mat? What if the owner of the house gets kind of mad because I just put in a a, a skylight into his roof without a permit? What if the Pharisees give me a hard time? I can see them already looking at me, and there's a bunch of them down there. What if Jesus gets mad because I interrupted his sermon? What if I'm just wasting my time? What if I wind up worse than when I started? And notice what Jesus says to the guy. The first thing he says, take Heart Take heart. That Greek word is one Greek word that means don't be afraid. Have courage. In other words, take heart, cheer up. don't give up. Don't be afraid. Have courage. It's OK. You're not bothering me. I'm glad you came. I can help you. Take heart, son. And I said, Jesus immediately eliminates any fear this guy might have, and then he eliminates something else, his guilt. Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Okay, hold the phone. I mean, this guy didn't come looking for forgiveness. He came for healing. So why does Jesus look at him and say, your sins are forgiving? What's going on? You know, I think most of us, if we're honest, would have to admit that we, like the man in Matthew 9, spend more time asking God to change the external circumstances in our life than asking him to change us in the inside. But understand, Jesus always looks beneath the surface, beneath the symptoms. He, he's a good doctor. And he deals with the root problem. He deals with the root issue. And when Jesus looked at this man, he sees more than a paralyzed guy lying on the mat. He sees the deeper issues. He sees the deeper wound. Jesus sees the sin. He looks down at the guy on the mat. He sees not only a broken body, but he sees a broken soul. So he says, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. And that word sins is a Greek word, harmateia, and it means missing the mark. God has a standard of righteousness, and sin means we miss that mark. It's like a bullseye. The bullseye is to be perfect before God, and we all miss the mark. Uh, the word forgiven is a compound word that means to separate from and to send away, right? It, You know, sin is missing the mark, and forgiveness is to separate from our sins and to send that sin away. And and that's how God treats our sin, right? I I love Psalm 103, verse 10 and 12. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. Someone say, he does not treat us as our sins deserve. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. Or repay us according to our offenses. For as high As the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Psalm 103, verses 10 through 12. And that's good news. Amen? And, question when Jesus said to this guy, Your sins are forgiven. Did he know there was a room full of Pharisees and scribes listening? Oh, yeah, he sure did. Intentional? Absolutely. Hey, you guys wanna know who I am? This is who I am. Next, the leaders freak out. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. And Luke puts it this way. The first and teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Okay, so why are these religious leaders freaking out about what Jesus just said? For at least a couple of reasons. First, these men would have objected to the idea that any person could be forgiven of their sins merely on the basis of faith. See, that's not how Pharisees saw salvation. To them, forgiveness was accomplished by first being a Jew and then by obeying the law. And that's why Paul spent so much time in his letters that he wrote letting people know, hey, you'll never be righteous by following the law. And as these men hear Jesus declare that this man is forgiving all their sins based on faith alone, they eject it. Now, you might wonder, like, why would they eject? I mean, isn't this good news? I mean, isn't it good news to learn that you don't have to earn God's salvation and forgiveness, that you don't have to obey the law in order to be forgiven? It's good news unless your heart is set on other things. In this case, their hearts were set on maintaining their power over the people, on being the gateway to God. Listen, as long as people believe that access to God's forgiveness depended on works of the law, these men stayed in power over the people. They decided when a person sinned. And they decided when a person had followed the law enough to be forgiven. I mean, they were actually doing the very thing they were accusing Jesus of. They were setting themselves up as the one deciding whether someone could receive God's forgiveness. And that brings us to the second objection they had: that Jesus had the authority and power to forgive sins. Who is this guy? No one but God alone can forgive sins. Understand, sin, sin isn't just some biblically word for doing something evil or making mistakes. Sin is a technical term. Sin, all sin is an offense against God. It's disobeying our creator. It's breaking his standard of righteousness. It's harmartia. It's missing the mark. And when we miss the mark, we've incurred a debt and a penalty must be paid. Now, God in his mercy and grace can forgive us of this offense against him, but only God can do it. Only God can extend forgiveness for sins because he's the one offended by it. Does that make sense? It's his standard he created us, and only he can forgive us. Next, Jesus knows their thoughts. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you tain, entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? I would have loved to see you look on their faces, right? <laughs> Busted! And they probably put on some innocent look, right? Oh, what? No, I wasn't thinking that. I was thinking about the game this week, right? Brothers and sisters, Jesus knows your thoughts. How does that make you feel? <laughs> I mean, you can hide your thoughts from me, right? Right now, I'm just thinking, you're all just saying, man, this sermon's so great. Steve's awesome, man. He looks really good today. You know, I, I, can, I can make myself believe that, what you're thinking, but I don't know your thoughts. Jesus knows your thoughts, right? He knows my thoughts. I'm thinking like, what is wrong with these people, man? Are they even paying attention out there? do <laughs> Next, I call this next thing mic drop. I have the authority. Which is easier to say? A room full of Pharisees, scribes. Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up and walk. But I want you to know the Son of Man has authority in order to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed guy, get up, take your mat, and go home. Then a man got up and went home. Now Jesus is using a, a technique of rabbinical logic from the difficult to the easy. The idea is if I can demonstrate that I can do a difficult thing, then I can obviously do the much easier thing. For example, if I tell you that, you know, if someone says that they can lift a 500-pound rock and you don't believe them, they could prove it by lifting a 1,000-pound rock. Because anyone who can lift up a 1,000-pound rock can lift up a 500-pound rock. And so in this case, Jesus claimed to have the power to forgive sins, and that's a very easy thing to claim. Because God's forgiveness can't be proved. Like no one on earth can prove one way or another if that statement is true. There's no visible sign. Which makes saying that easy. On the other hand, saying to a paralyzed guy, get up and walk and take your mat and go home is a very hard thing to do because instantly your words will be shown whether they're true or they're false. If the man does not get up, your deception is exposed. Exposed. Yet both of these statements do share one thing in common. Only God can declare someone forgiven of sins, and only God can heal someone by just speaking a word. So if Jesus can heal by his word, then he's proven that he's God. And if he's God, then he can declare a man's sin forgiven. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to man Mark adds the crowd said we have never seen anything like this Luke says we have seen remarkable things today unexpected things today uncommon things today wonderful things today kind of happens when Jesus is around right Matthew 9 9 as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. And so, you know, Jesus leaves Peter's house, and he's walking on the main road in Galilee, and, and there's a large group of people with him. A, a lot of Pharisees and scribes are there, and, and now they're in opposition to him. And he comes upon a tax collection booth, and that booth is a Jewish man named Matthew. Now, interestingly, in both Mark and Luke's account, they use the name Levi, which in the case is from the tribe of Levi. But here the author himself chooses the name Matthew, which in Hebrew means gift of Yahweh. And listen, Matthew using two different names reflects a tradition within the church in this day. And that day, when a, sometimes when a, when a, when a person, became a Christian, they would take on a new name reflecting his or her new identity in Christ. So Levi changed his name to Matthew after his conversion, and that's the name he preferred to use in his own gospel. You know, and, and there's some places, in, like in, in areas of Africa and Asia, that when someone comes to Christ, they keep their last name, but they go to the Bible and choose a name like Moses or Elijah, right? And they keep their last name, but they say, I'm somebody new, and I want to change my name to represent the fact that I am somebody new. I kind of like that idea. I almost wish we kind of did that. I wish when I got saved, it's like, hey, you know what? I'm going to change my name to represent I'm somebody different now, right? And that's what Matthew's doing. And so picture the scene. Matthew's at his tax collector booth, and, and, and like, we don't like tax collectors today. At least I don't. But first century, they were despised and hated. You see, Rome needed taxes to support their empire, which went from India all the way to Great Britain. And across that great expanse was a lot of infrastructure. Military posts, roads, bridges, government buildings, ships, and of course, nice places to live in. And so they constricted some Jewish people for the job. They didn't pay them any money. And their job was, here's your quota, you need to collect. Collect as much as you want. You don't collect enough, we're going to beat you. You collect any more, you can keep the rest. And they're like, hey, if people would hate me anyhow, I'd rather hate me when I'm rich, right? And they're going to, hey, you know, we're going to take as much as we want from these people. And of course, any Jew who took on this job was considered a traitor to his people. Like they were supporting Rome and its occupation of them. Pharisees so despised tax collectors that rabbinical writings of the day used them to say, this is the greatest way that you can break the law. They said no Jew could be more sinful than a tax collector. In fact, the word sinner became synonymous with tax collector. They could not testify in court. They could not be a witness in court. And the Pharisees even taught that it's not possible for a tax collector to even repent and receive forgiveness. And the only people that they could associate with are other tax collectors and prostitutes. So Matthew's at his booth, just another hot day in the sun, being a hated outcast. And he looks up and he sees this crowd of people coming his way. And he's probably gearing up, okay, let me get ready for the verbal insults and hatred they're going to spew at me. And, and now he knows who Jesus is, right? I mean, Jesus is the talk of the region of Galilee. The man that some people say even could be the Messiah. As the crowd goes closer, Matthew watches, I think, in a fascination and maybe a little jealousy. What would I would give to be in that crowd? But how could that ever happen? No rabbi, let alone someone who just might be the Messiah, would want anything to do with somebody like me. Then a miracle happens. As Jesus passes by, he stops, turns, catches Matthew's widened eyes and says, follow me. The crowd, especially the religious leaders, gasped in utter shock. Matthew pinched himself to see if he was dreaming. But then almost immediately, He runs out of his booth to join Jesus. Luke adds that Matthew left everything behind. He left his booth, he left his money, he left his responsibilities to Rome. He left the protection of the Roman soldiers. Most of all, Matthew left behind his shame and his guilt and his tag as an outcast. While Jesus was having dinner, Matthew 9, 10, 11, at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. So Matthew throws this big dinner in honor of Jesus, and the only people he could invite, right, only contacts he had on his contacts were other tax collectors and prostitutes. When the Pharisees saw this, peering in through the windows, Jesus at the table, and, you know, you see that great pain of the Last Supper? That's not how tables were, right? We know that, right? One thing, no one... Most of my tables, we'd all sit on the same side so we can take a picture, right? You know, uh, but I, you're getting a picture. And, and it, the tables were low and you actually sat on the floor and reclined on like pillows. And so you're leaning and your feet are outstretched from the table. And, and so, I mean, you are it's pretty intimate, right? You're laying on the ground, you're leaning, you're rubbing shoulders. So They're looking in the window and here is Jesus in a room rubbing shoulders with eating with The most sinful people they could ever imagine. And they were disgusted. No Jew, let alone a rabbi, would enter a house of a tax collector, let alone dine with them. They asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with collectors, tax collectors and sinners? (laughs) See what they're doing. Those dogs, right? They're attacked in Jesus' character. Hey, you guys are obviously following the wrong guy. The true Messiah would never sin this way. He he would never associate and get that close with ungodly people. And listen, that's what they were taught. Uh, That's what the disciples were taught by the Pharisees. Uh, That's what everyone at the table were taught. Jesus hears everything. (laughs) On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Luke adds, I've not come to call the righteous... But sinners to repentance. In other words, Jesus said, hey, these tax collectors and prostitutes that I'm dining with are spiritually sick. And that's something that both the Pharisees and Jesus would agree upon. However, the question was, and what they disagreed upon was, what's our spiritual obligation towards such people? The Pharisees concluded that God had no mercy for people like this. You see, they believe that God showed mercy to those who were righteous, those who kept the law of Moses, and those who followed the oral traditions. Now, naturally, the Pharisees saw themselves as perfect candidates for God's mercy, while the tax collectors and prostitutes were beyond the reach of God's mercy. But Jesus reminds them hey, that's not how doctors work. I'm saying Jesus was acting like a doctor. Bringing the medicine of God's mercy to those who needed forgiveness the most. And that's why Jesus favored sinners over the Pharisees. Jesus said he came to call sinners to repentance, not the righteous. After all, why should he bring forgiveness to people who think they never did anything wrong? Now as obvious as that might sound to us now, Jesus being a great physician, it wasn't how Pharisees imagined the Messiah would be. They imagined the Messiah would be a conquering king who would set things right and punish all those who did wrong. And obviously when he arrived, he would be like a super Pharisee. It would be like the teacher who puts gold stars on the papers of exceptional students. And they're like, hey, when he comes back, our paper is going to be full of gold stars because we are so much more righteous than everyone else. They never imagined that they were sinners in need of a savior. And that's why they could look down on their noses at the tax collectors and prostitutes because they saw themselves as righteous already. They could judge others because they saw no need to judge themselves. But we know the Pharisees were not righteous because Scripture says no one is righteous, not even one. Well, listen, these men said they had no sin. They were left in their sins. While the so-called sinners <laughs> are sitting at the table with Jesus, eating land chops, and receiving the forgiveness that only comes from God. Understand, brothers and sisters, pride is an ugly thing. It brought the first man down, and it stood in the way of these religious leaders receiving forgiveness from the Son of God. Get it? Get it? Good. And then Jesus says to these Ph.D. scholars, But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I've come, not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Basically saying, hey guys, go back and read. You smart guys? With all those letters after your name and all those things on your wall? Go back and reread what the prophet Hosea said about God's mercy. About receiving it and about showing it. Because you obviously missed the point. Because you think it's more important to follow rules and to make sacrifices than it is to dispense and extend and be an agent of God's mercy. Okay, we walk through our text. Now for the takeaways. and Relax, it'll go much quicker. Because the point of a takeaway is that you what? You take it away. I'm going to give you five. There's probably more. Takeaway number one friends bring friends to Jesus. That, that's what the paralyzed guy did, right? That, that's what Matthew did. Question Do you have any friends that need Jesus? Who needs Jesus, Steve? Lost people need Jesus. Hurting people need Jesus. The broken need Jesus. The wandering need Jesus. The discouraged need Jesus. The depressed need Jesus. The prodigals need Jesus. Why would a friend not take their friend to Jesus? Like, if someone has a friend who really needs Jesus, are they even a friend if they do not take that person to Jesus? I've always loved this Quote by the atheist, comedian, illusionist guy. I think I have it. A... Penn Jillette, the atheist, illusionist comedian said, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward... How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them? Like, how much do you have to hate your friend to know that they're lost and could go to hell and you don't tell them? Next takeaway, our greatest problem is our sin problem. Listen, if we could somehow solve every problem in our life, relational, physical, vocational, emotional, financial, every problem... Except our sin problem, we still lose big time for all time. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Your greatest problem is your sin problem. Next takeaway, Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. Colossians 2, 13 and 14. You were dead because you were sinful and were not God's people. But God let Christ make you alive when he forgave all our sins. God wiped out the charges that were against us for disobeying the law of Moses. He took them away and nailed them to the cross. Hebrews eight twelve. 12, I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Here's what the deal. Jesus has the authority to forgive sins, to wipe them out, to take them away, to nail them to a cross, and remember them no more. Amen? When? Well, when the Bible says so. And, 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 and when is a non-Christian forgiven? Peter said in the first gospel sermon, Acts 2.38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. That's the way we see in the Bible. People repent, confess, and they're baptized into Christ. How does a Christian receive forgiveness? First John 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. First John 1 John 1.9. And will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we confess, he's faithful and just and will forgive. That's a fact. It's not about how you feel. It's about what God's word says, right? If you're sorry for your sin and you confess it, the enemy may make you want to still feel guilty, but you're not. You know, fact. God's facts over your feelings. Amen. All right. Takeaway number four Jesus can radically change anyone's life. From hated, despised, outcast to a guy who wrote the gospel, we're now in our 53rd week studying together. You save anyone, change anyone's life. Final takeaway is a huge one sick, sinful people need a doctor. Now, let's pull up those questions. Remember, we asked earlier Is there a doctor in the house? Would a doctor who told sick people they were not sick be a good doctor? It's probably easier to answer earlier than it's probably the answer now. Now, who determines what sin is? Culture? Politicians? Majority opinion? Latest polls? College professors? The media? Social media, TikTok, like he determines what, what sin is. What is sin? I contend that God determines it. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Sexual morality, impurity, lustful pleasure idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outburst of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I told you before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. I understand, Maple Grove, as I said last week, Jesus didn't eat with sinners and tax collectors because he wanted to appear inclusive, tolerant, and accepting. He ate with them because he loved them and was calling them to repentance, to a change and transfer life. And here's the deal. There are many doctors out there today who claim to follow Christ and yet are telling sick people they're not sick. All the while telling them how much they love them. That is not love. That is deception. That is evil. Allow them to live in lifestyles that God opposes and say it's okay. It's okay to take the life of the baby in the womb. It's your choice. No, that's a life created by God, knit in the womb. That's not your choice. But there are doctors out there. It's your choice. It's your choice if you want to have sex before marriage. It's your choice if if you want to practice homosexuality. It's your choice. And because we love you so much, we'll allow you to make that choice. There are too many doctors telling sick people they're not sick. And listen, I know it's not an easy thing. I know it's a dangerous thing in our culture for us to say something like this, right? You know, to stand up for what God says. But listen, the final day, you're not going to stand before a political leader. You're going to stand before the holy king of kings, right? That's who we answer to. And so I just want to challenge you, you know, if we're a good doctor, we'll tell. Now we're not be mean about it. You filthy, disgusting, sick people. No, because you love people. Again, I contend a doctor, if I was sick and my doctor didn't tell me, I, I would say, you know, you're, you're not a good doctor. Next, what a doctor who knew the treatment for a person's serious sickness refused to share it, be a good or bad doctor. And again, there's some bad doctors today. You know, like, I, I've been a bad doctor this way. You know, we're like, I'm around a sick person and, and I don't tell them they're sick. I, 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 don't, I don't press the issue because it could be awkward, it could be difficult. So I, I'm not going to tell them, hey, you know, I, you have this deep problem that is separated from God and God loves you so much he sent his son to die. So that you can have eternal life with Him. But I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to tell you. And when I do that, I am not a good doctor and I should be fired. Amen? Like We're not a good doctor. And this week, you may run out some sick people where you work, where you go to school, in your community, in your neighborhood. You know what God is saying? Is there a doctor in the house? Is there a doctor in the house that... Loves these people enough to take the risk to say, I died to save them? I saw this pop up on Facebook this week. If the living knew what the dead knew, the whole world would follow Jesus. Wow. Because they know. Jesus told a parable. Check it out, Luke 16. Where a guy who didn't know God, didn't love God, was in torment. And the bank, hey, could someone just dip a drop water in my tongue? I'm in torment. Right? People who, die, who died without Christ are in torment. Yeah. And we know. See, we know what dead people know. We know what dead people know. Would a doctor, last question. And I knew this would be a very uncomfortable conversation for all of us, myself included. Would a doctor refuse to be around sick people? Be a good doctor or a bad doctor? Bad doctor. There's some bad doctors today. For a lot of years, a lot of times churches have been typically bad doctors, right? We claim the fall of Christ. We don't want to be around sick people. Uh, We'd rather be in our holy huddles. Around people who look like us, talk like us, act like us, smell like us, vote like us, use the same deodorant as us, or at least use deodorant. Sick people make us uncomfortable. And maybe even certain types of sick people that you just find so disgusting. Disgusting. I don't want to be around them. They're disgusting. The things they do, how they live. And whenever that's us, Jesus would say, I have some homework for you. Go and learn. Go and learn that I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Go and learn that. Yeah, I'm glad you're in church. I'm glad you read your Bible. I'm glad you go to Bible studies and men's groups and ladies' group. I'm glad you got a Jesus sticker on your car. That's all fine and good. But go and learn that, that I want you to be a dispenser of mercy. Question. Are there some sick people that God is wanting you to have a meal with? Metaphorically or in general right You're like, hey I need it. is there a doctor in the house does anybody feel like our world is sick God doesn't call us to point fingers and stomp our feet and make mean Facebook posts he says hey take my love and mercy out in this world be smart about it right don't be stupid <laughs> we need to be wise as serpents right don't be stupid don't bring on unnecessary conflict and attacks to yourself. Be wise as serpent and what? Gentle as doves. Just don't be stupid. Some places you maybe shouldn't go, right? The Holy Spirit will give us direction. But this week, you know, God wants to know, and we're going to be in a lot of places, probably with lost, hurting people, and God wants to know, is there a doctor in the house? And I pray he'll find us. And I'll pray... We'll repent this morning of the times we've been a bad doctor. Telling sick people they're not sick. Not bringing our friends to Jesus. Caring more about feeling awkward than about letting someone know they're lost and need salvation. Or just like, hey, I'd rather be around good people. <laughs> you know, who vote the way I do and all that stuff, right? We need to repent of that and spend, figure out how we can be around some more sick people. They're definitely out there. And I do want to say this. um, No one has to leave here not forgiven by God. Isn't that good news? Like, there's nothing you have to do, right? Some checklist you have to check off. Well, if I do this, do this. No. If you're a Christ follower and you screwed up, you're a Christ follower and you have screwed up. (laughs) If you say, God, I'm sorry. I've been doing this wrong. I've been saying it wrong. I've been being wrong. Uh, uh, help me not do it again. Forgive me. Then you are forgiven. Whether you feel that way or not. Facts over feelings. If you've never surrendered to Christ, you know, you know. I, I, uh, on Friday I cleaned it all out and there's a bunch of fresh water in the bathroom back there. You can't actually see the bottom, right? No critters crawling in it. But if you've never surrendered to Jesus, He loves you. And if you believe in Him, and who He is, and you've never been buried with Him in baptism, I encourage you to do it today. Amen? You guys would stand and just know, you know, we take our communion after this. And there's at the various stations, you can pick it up, but pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the great physician who healed our sickness, who bore our wounds, who removed our sin at the cross. And God, I pray as we sing right now that we just celebrate the cross where Jesus gave His life. We celebrate the cross as it shows us how to live our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.